the podcast that is now called Paideia originally started as Storytime. So you might hear the podcast referred to as Storytime in this episode, but you are listening to Paideia with Cassie Michael. Hello and welcome to Storytime. This is episode two. Woo! Um, today I'm going to be reading Ender's Game and talking through what I find there. So I hope you'll join me in this experience of this story. So before I dive deep into Ender's Game, I wanted to start by telling you all why I chose to read this book first and why I'm choosing to read it now. So for years and years, or maybe just a few years, I can't actually quite remember, my mom has been telling me to read Ender's Game. She'll ask, have you ever read Ender's Game? And I'll be like, no. She's like, you really need to read it. It's really good. And then a few years later, she'll ask, have you read Ender's Game yet? And I'll be like, no. And she'll be like, you need to read it. Um, And so this is a book that my mom insists I read. And she says it's really good and that I won't be able to put it down. So I have read the first few chapters of the book. And I did enjoy those chapters. But then school got started and, you know... I just lost the time to read. Um, And so um, I have a physical copy of the book here at college. And so I um, am going to commit to reading this story and um, seeing why my mom has been insisting for years and years that I read it. Um, I think you'll also be a way for me to feel closer to my mom um, even though I'm um, like hundreds of miles away from her Uh, so mom these next few episodes I don't know how many will take me to read Ender's Game but these next few episodes are dedicated and in honor of you So, I'm reading Ender's Game by Orson Scott Scott Card. Um, So, um, I'll start with the introduction. It makes me a little uncomfortable writing an introduction to Ender's Game. After all, the book has been in print for six years now, and in all that time, nobody has ever written to me to say, You know... Ender's Game was a pretty good book, but you know what it really needs? An introduction. And yet, when a novel goes back to print for a new hardcover edition, there ought to be something new in it to mark the occasion. Something besides the minor changes as they fix the errors and um, internal contradictions and stylistic excess that have bothered me ever since the novel first appeared. 
So be assured, the novel stands on its own. And if you skip this intro and go straight to the story, I not only won't stand in your way, I'll even agree with you. And with that, um, I read chapter one, and I will recap um, chapter one. So chapter one opens with a conversation with um, that is had between unnamed characters. Chapter one is entitled Third and begins, I've watched through his eyes, I've listened through his ears, and I tell you, he's the one, or at least as close as we're going to get. That's what you said about the brother. The brother tested out impossible for other reasons, nothing to do with his ability. Same with the sister, and there are doubts about him. He's too malleable, too willing to submerge himself in someone else's will. So we're left wondering, who are these people? Um, who are they talking about? Um, and what is this person the one for? Um, and how have you watched through his eyes and listened through his ears? Um, that kind of language, um, it's kind of, I kind of get a God feeling with it, um, in the sense that, like, um, gods in general, deities in general, are thought of as all-knowing. They see everything, and they're at least the Christian God from things I've learned in my life experience, He's everywhere with you, and he experiences everything you experience, and he's all-knowing. Um, but I don't get the sense um, that these characters are gods. So, in the rest of the chapter, we meet um, Andrew, and he gets his monitor taken out. Um, Andrew also goes by Ender, and he is a third. Um, he has a brother, Peter, and he has a sister, Valentine. So he has a procedure to get his monitor removed. And then he returns to school for the end of the day. And then as he's leaving to catch the bus home, a group of boys... Um, starts picking on him and he fights back um, and that is where um, the chapter ends um, he turned and walked away nobody followed him he turned a corner into the corridor leading to the bus stop he could hear the boys behind him saying geez look at him He's wasted. Ender leaned his head against the wall of the corridor and cried until the bus came. I am just like Peter. Take my monitor away and I'm just like Peter. So Ender is feeling guilt there, I think. Um, I don't think he thinks that being like Peter is a good thing. 
Um, and I think that because earlier in the chapter, um, as he is thinking, right, as he's about to get his monitor out, um, he's saying, he's thinking about how his relationship will change with Peter. Um, he says, and Peter won't hate me anymore. I'll come home and show him that the monitor's gone and he'll see that I didn't make it either, that I'll be a normal kid now, like him. That won't be so bad then. He'll forgive me that I had my monitor a whole year longer than him, than he had his. We'll be not friends, probably. No, Peter was too dangerous. Peter got so angry. Brothers, though. Not enemies, not friends, but brothers able to live in the same house. He won't hate me. He'll just leave me alone. And when he wants to play buggers and astronauts, maybe I won't have to play. Maybe I can just read a book. So, Peter is not a, someone that Ender looks up to not someone he wants to be like. That ending of the chapter, I am just like Peter, take my monitor away, and I'm just like Peter, it kind of reminds me of um, other stories where characters don't want to end up being like their parents. Um, and, you know, someone will say, you're acting just like your father, or... You're acting just like that, and they don't like it. And in some cases, it's because maybe their parents were abusive to them, or just because they wanted to be better. I think it's human nature to always be better than, um, and always do better than um, you have been. So, some different themes that emerged from this chapter. Um, one is dependability. One line that stuck out to me was, sometimes lies were more dependable than the truth. Um, and this one, this line occurred when um, the nurse or the monitor lady um, was describing the procedure to Ender and said that it wasn't going to hurt. Um, but since adults always said it when it was going to hurt, you could count on that statement as an accurate prediction of the future. Sometimes lies are more dependable than the truth. Um, I also see dependability um, in the opening of the chapter. Um, this unnamed person is saying, he's the one, he's the best we've got. And then the conversation is being like, are you sure? These are times when we've been wrong when we've thought this. So is that dependable? Um, it seems with the whole idea of the monitor, um, it's a way for someone, some group of people to watch these characters and to study them. Um, and it seems like based on it, they make a decision. Um, like some type of decision is made 
Um, and that's why some people have it in longer than others. So that leads back to like the dependability of, um, of monitors. Um, it also leads me, I also saw in this chapter, um, the idea of privacy with the monitor. The monitor does not lend itself to these characters having privacy. Um, but Ender says, um, Ender sees advantages in the monitor. So as he's leaving school, he knows that he's going to get picked on. He knows that um, they would be waiting though the bad ones. His monitor wasn't perched on his neck hearing what he heard and seeing what he saw. They could say what they liked. They might even hit him now. No one could see them anymore, and so no one could come to Ender's rescue. There were advantages to the monitor, and he would miss them. So Ender has given up his privacy and his... Um, ability to experience his um, thoughts and um, what he sees and hears on his own and not have that seen and interpreted by other people. But there's advantages um, to that. Um, celebrities, and I don't know why my mind goes there, but like celebrities, um, they give up their privacy as they live very public lives. Um, and I wonder if there are advantages to celebrity um, and to being famous. I read um, an extremely remarkable thing, or, oh gosh, an incredibly remarkable thing, Hank Green's first book. Um, and it talked about fame and the different levels of fame. And... Uh, I think fame can do good because you have a platform, but also you have to give up your privacy and you can make money from fame, which is good for a lot of people and an advantage for a lot of people. But also, um, as I've learned in one of my classes this year, you only money only makes a difference in your happiness um, to the point where you have enough money that you are financially secure. Once you are financially secure, accumulating wealth and accumulating more money does not impact your happiness in any way. So being famous or being a celebrity to accumulate money, um, I don't know how much of an advantage that would be. Um, I'm guessing I'm questioning, like, where's the line? Um, what do we give up? What should we give up um, in order to get an advantage? What things are we not willing to give up, even if um, there would be an advantage to giving them up? And that's probably different for every person. So I also question... Um, 
like what we're willing to give up for an advantage says about the type of people that we are. So I've mentioned before that I listened to Harry Potter um, and the sacred text. Um, I'm not going to do any sacred practices, although I think they're great at like um, close reading. Um, but one thing that they do as a part of a sacred practice is trace a word through a series. Um, and they always like look for um, like the, they love it when like the word that their theme is appears in the chapter. And so one thing I did with this chapter was I traced the title of the chapter. Um, and so chapter one is called third and I'll read some of the instances where it occurred. Um, so this is when um, Ender is thinking about what things could be like with Peter. Um, so Peter would not do, uh, one thing Peter would not do was leave him alone. I'm practicing piano, Ender. Come turn the pages for me. Oh, is the monitor boy too busy to help his brother? Is he too smart? Got to go kill some buggers, astronaut? No, no. I don't want your help. I can do it on my own, you little bastard. You little third. So there, it's being used as an insult. Um... And then the next time it is it appears is as a message sent to Ender. Um, Ender had figured out the way to send messages um, and make them march, even as his secret enemy called him names. Um, he says, it was not his fault he was a third. It was the government's idea. They were the ones who authorized it. How else could a third like Ender have gotten into school? Um, then it occurs again as, um, Stilton, he's kind of the leader of the group of boys that is picking on and bullying Ender. Hey, third, don't answer, nothing to say. Hey, third, we're talking to you. Third, hey, bugger lover, we're talking. Can't think of anything to answer. Anything I say will make it worse. So, we'll sing nothing. Hey, third. Hey, turd. You flunked out, huh? Thought you were better than us, but you lost your little birdie. Thirty got a band-aid on your neck. So, that's where it's used again. And here I'm only looking at the third, because that third, not thirty, or variations of third, because it appears so often, and that is the title. Um... Then here, Ender says it. He says, you mean it takes this many of you to fight one-third? We're not people. Oh, we're people, not thirds, turd face. Um, so, that's kind of interesting how the title of the chapter um, appears as words in a chapter and so we see it as an insult many times um, and then 
even Ender kind of uses it to insult um, his bullies, saying, it takes this many of you to fight me. Um, being a third seems to be something that is inferior to um, all the other citizens. Um, and then another thing um, that I think, oh, another thing that um, I, like, that stood out to me in this chapter was, um, like, the fight. Um, so he fought Seltzen, he heard him, um, and then Ender tried to figure out a way, he knew that there would be vengeance, and so he thought, and he was strategic about how to forestall that vengeance. I have to win this now, and for all time, or I'll fight it every day, and it will get worse and worse. Um, and so then he... Um, kicks Stilton while he's down, um, and then he says um, to the gang, you might be having some idea of ganging up on me. You could probably beat me up pretty bad, but just remember what I do to people who try to hurt me. From then on, you'd be wondering when I'd get you and how bad it would be. He kicked Stilton in the face, Blood from his nose splattered on the ground nearby. It wouldn't be this bad, Ender said. It would be worse. Um, so that shows that he doesn't... That wasn't an act of emotion. Maybe the initial punch and the initial um, violence wasn't an, an act of emotion from being picked on. But the continued fight... That wasn't emotion, that wasn't passion, that was, like, strategic. Um, and I'm wondering when it is to our benefit to be strategic, and when it's our benefit to be logical, and when it's, our benef when it's to our benefit to um, act from emotion. And... I don't know. Um, so, one thing that also stood, another thing that stood out to me in this chapter was um, also during the fight. It says, Ender knew the unspoken rules of manly warfare, even though he was only six. It was forbidden to strike the opponent who lay helpless on the ground. Only an animal would do that. So, <clears throat> what strikes me about that is that Ender is so young. He's six years old, but he thinks so strategically. And um, his, like, the voice of this character does not sound like the voice of a six-year-old, um, to me at least. When I'm reading it, I don't picture a six-year-old saying these things um, and thinking these thoughts. Um, but this book also doesn't appear to take place in the world as we know it today. Um, I think the characters are human, um, and I think that they live on Earth because, like, it says astronauts, and 
Um, the characters appear to be human, um, but it's not the same world that we live in today. It, I think it definitely takes place in the future. Um, but why that line really caught my eye was the part that says only an animal would do that. Um, and that's because at my college we have this class that's a common first year experience. So every single first year takes um, this class called Paideia and we take it for the whole year and we have a common syllabus. So we all read and study the same texts, um, which include like many different genres and types of writing and also art or music. Um, and we answer big questions, what they call enduring questions. And for a whole semester, the question was, what makes us human? Um, so that's a question that I still think about and I still look for answers. And so here it's saying only an animal would do that. So what makes us human is, um, our empathy, it seems. Our empathy not to strike an opponent who is helpless on the ground. Um, our, well, I guess I don't know if that's empathy. I guess, I don't know what stops us from striking people when they're down or kicking people when they're down. What is immoral about that? And what in humans makes us stop from doing that? Or like, why is it human to do that? And why would only an animal, why would only an animal do that? Um, where's the humanity in it? I don't, as I think about it, it could be empathy because we could put ourselves in their posi position, um, being helpless, um, and you know, not wanting, it could be empathy or it could be fairness. Um, I know in Beowulf, when I read that in high school, there was an emphasis on wanting to have a fair fight. And if it wasn't a fair fight, and if the opponents weren't on equal ground and have and had equal equipment, then like it wasn't a good fight and it wouldn't like Make, give you fame or make you famous um, or be a benefit to you. So maybe some of it is in human pride in wanting to fight fair. Um, I don't know. I've said before that what makes us human is empathy. Um, but I don't know if what if the humanity and not striking someone when they're down um, or not striking an opponent who lay helpless on the ground I don't know if that's empathy or if that's pride or if that's justice or some other emotion or even a combination of all three I yeah I don't know. I wonder what it is and what makes that humane and 
why we consider that like humanity. And that's chapter one of Ender's Game. Pretty good so far. I really like the write the writing is really good. Um and I'm definitely interested to read chapter two. Oh, as I mentioned last week, um, I would love it if you could join in the conversation with me. Um, I don't want this to necessarily um, always just be me talking and thinking and reflecting. Um, I think one thing that's really great is that stories can be understood and interpreted in many different ways. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts um, on Ender's Game and um, on what I said and like some of the ideas. So please feel free to leave me a voicemail um, and I will still working on figuring out how exactly I want to share that link um, to receive a voicemail. Um, but I'd love to start including listener voicemails as a part of the episode. Thank you for listening. And that's a wrap on episode two of Storytime. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm having a great time with this podcast, and I've already noticed that um as I read that first chapter of Ender's Game, I read so much more closely and I noticed a lot more things. I even noticed a typo in the book. Um, and even in just that one chapter, I think there's a lot to think about and a lot to ponder. And um, I got a lot out of it and I hope you did too. Um, join me next time as I read chapter two entitled Peter. Thanks. Have a great day.